Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Where can you get the best medical advice anytime, anywhere? I hope right here on this podcast. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today, we are again going to discuss an important topic within the field of allergy, food allergies. I have done several podcasts on this subject, but I just couldn't pass up the opportunity to shed some more light on this disease when I found out my guest today, Dr. Carrie Nadal, just released her new book, The End of Food Allergies. I have to show this to my listeners and viewers. It's also co-written with Sloan Barnett, who's very interesting. Her daughter suffered from food allergies. Dr. Nadal is the Natasee Foundation Endowed Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics, and she's the director of the Shorn and Parker Center for Allergy and Asthma Research. Remember Sean Park from Facebook uh, Notoriety at Stanford University. She is also the Section Chief in Asthma and Allergy in the Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Division at Stanford. I could go on and on. She's got a lot of titles, which are really impressive. She is considered, though, I will tell you this for all the listeners, among her fellow allergists to probably be the most preeminent researcher clinician in the field today. And I don't say that lightly. So when I was telling some other allergist that she was going to be on my podcast. They were super excited. On a personal note now, I actually met Dr. Nadal probably over 10 years ago at one of the American Academy of Allergy meetings in Anaheim, California. She was giving a lecture at that time on something very near and dear to me, sublingual immunotherapy. But I have to say this, and, and this is in all earnest, she is particularly a hero role model of mine in the field of allergy. And I'm going to explain. I too, as a lot of you viewers may know, I'm a board certified allergist and I do podcasts on a lot of different subjects, but this, you know, allergy, immunology, infectious disease is actually my specialty. But some of you may know that I had my own personal transformation in allergy back in 1998. I had switched my entire practice from allergy injections to sublingual drops. And I actually wrote the book myself, The Allergy and Asthma Solution, where I talked about my dramatic change in my career for various reasons. And it was quite controversial at the time. And I felt quite lonely and sort of like an outlier. So that's why it was really nice going to Dr. Nadell's lecture back then. But I have to say something else. I, I also was not very proud of being called an allergist back then. I was actually slightly embarrassed when introducing myself to other doctors. And you ask why? Well, for a good part of 100 years, allergists were known as shot doctors. And many colleagues seemed to mainly take pride in how many allergy shots they were giving in a day. Personally, I, I was dismayed at how the field had not advanced since the days uh, of the physicians that trained me, many of them who trained in the 50s. And they were doing the exact same techniques that I was being trained to do. My guest today, Dr. Karen Adal, is the polar opposite of your typical allergist immunologist as a researcher and a clinician. She is bold. She took a specialty of food allergy on with the mantra, failure is not an option. And just to show her also, I still saved the magazine from seven years ago when the New York Times did a whole profile on her and what she was doing. I didn't know we were going to have this interview seven years later, but as I said, truly, she was a hero. 
And we know that trying to avoid a food allergy or multiple food allergies is not really realistic. Sometimes it's almost impossible. So this book, The End of Food Allergies and Her Own Personal Research, really is a testament to the fortitude to make children with food allergies and their parents have a better life. So after that long, a little bit winded introduction, it's my great honor and pleasure to welcome Dr. Karen E. Dow to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor and privilege to be here, Dr. Mitchell. I am so glad that we can reconnect through your amazing podcast that affects millions of people. And so I feel very lucky to be here today. And I am so excited. And there's so many people that have been in this field. And I feel like we're building on the blocks of so many talented individuals to be able to have the science that delivers on the hope and promise of therapy and prevention for many people that suffer from these diseases. You know, on that note, I'm just curious before we get into a lot of the allergy stuff, If you had a specific mentor or someone you wanted to emulate in the field, because, you know, in truth, women were rarely ever in really high powered academic positions like yourself. I mean, I remember when I was training at the Cook Institute in New York, it was the oldest allergy, one of the oldest allergy fellowship programs in the country. And they used to have in one of the libraries a big photo of the New York Allergy Society. And when you looked at that picture, they were just really about 99.9% white men there. And there was usually one woman who was either a lab assistant or a secretary. So just out of curiosity, because really, I can't think of too many people in your position, even now as a, as a woman in charge of a center of allergy and asthma. Was there anybody that, that you looked up to that you wanted to be like? Yeah, I think two people always, you know, Mary okay. Hewitt Loveless uh, was a woman who oh my gosh, yes, I know of her, yes. took out the bee venoms individually of bees instead of chopping That's out right. bees and putting them into shots. She actually said, no, 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 let's actually get the protein out from the venom. Right, oh, and, I and know. And she would extract out the bee venom, right? Squeeze the bees. Yes, yes. And so I was always enamored by her. How did you know about her? Though? I was just curious because I knew from doctors that trained me who worked at Cornell who knew her. That's you right. just heard about her or you did you ever meet her? I think, uh, no. But I have seen her picture and here's how. So I think she originally was in the East Coast trained, I believe, at Hopkins and then went to Stanford and has some family there. And uh, she developed a scholarship and she developed an endowment that went to my mentor, Dr. Galley, who then then I was one of the lucky recipients of the Mary Hewitt Loveless Award. And then my other wonderful mentors, Dr. Dale Umetsu. Yes, I, I've, I've, I've read I, a lot of his articles. Yes, he's done yes. world-class work. That's really interesting. We're going to get to Dr. Lovelace later. It's so funny you bring that up. Is uh, There's going to be an interesting connection. Okay, let's get into the food allergy stuff, which I know a lot of listeners want to know about. And as I said, we've done several co- podcasts before on food allergy. This is going to be for people that I'm sure have someone in their family that has a food allergy. They're probably up on a lot of the things that are going on, but we're going to really get to the meat and potatoes and some really, I think, important practical things. So, Dr. Nadal, it's commonly accepted that over the past 30 years, food allergies have exploded, really becoming an epidemic before we had this COVID epidemic. There's clearly no hoax (laughs) going on in food allergy. I, I have my opinions, which I've expressed a little bit before. Why do you think we're seeing such unprecedented number of cases of food allergies. And I would say, especially multiple food allergies. It's not even like before you heard somebody had a peanut allergy. Now I'm seeing cases, I know you are, of children that have like seven, eight serious food allergies. And I, you know, I guess, obviously, we know it's got to have some kind of environmental influence. It can't just be genetic. So 
I know you talk about it in your book, which is interesting. So, but I'd like, you know, some of your pointers or, you know, observations on, you know, what you're seeing at Stanford. We're really excited to be able to work with a lot of epidemiologists throughout the world that have published on some of these associations of what could increase the risk of food allergies. And we know so much more now than we did even 10 years ago and even 20 years ago when I was training. And that science has now built up many strong facts that we talk about in the book to be able to let someone who's just delivered a baby or someone that might have a child already with food allergy have a toolkit, have a how-to list of how to prevent. Because now that we know some of the causes, now we can think about how to change behaviors to prevent. So that's all within the rubric of the fact that there's about five Ds that we know potentially now lead to the increase in food allergy. You're absolutely right, Dr. Mitchell. There's the fact that about 10% of now adults in the U.S. have been uh, diagnosed with food allergy. About 8% of children in the U.S. have been diagnosed with food allergy. It's not just the U.S. anymore. In China, they just released the data, about 8% of people in China have food allergies. So this is definitely growing throughout the globe. It's just not in South, it's not just in North America, it's in South America as well. To answer your question, we think some of the reasons is because back in 2000, a group of well-meaning people used a small amount of data to then make the guideline that they should avoid feeding children peanut, egg, milk, shrimp. And it turns out that that probably was not the best advice. It was based on the data that we had. But now, 10 years forward, 20 years forward, we now have tons of data from thousands of individuals to say that diversity of diet is really important. So that's the first D. Right. Yeah, that's a, that is a point. I just want for the listeners to listen because, again, I, I was learning things reading your book. So, yes, and I like to recommend this to my adult patients anyway, too. Don't eat this. You know, that was actually one of the teachers, one of my really good allergy uh, instructors, you know, doctors. He was also a board certified dermatologist. He was a very bright guy, but he used to say, you know, you don't become allergic the first time you eat a food a lot of cases. It's always after repetitive eating it. So yeah, diversity of diet makes a lot of sense. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes. No, no, it's great. And then the immune system actually likes diversity of diet so that simultaneously, if you can give all of the food proteins that typically are those that are associated with food allergies. Now, like you said, Dr. Mitchell, not only is it just peanuts anymore, it's multiple. If you have one allergy when you're an infant diagnosed perhaps by an allergist, you probably have a 45 to 50% chance of getting another allergy at some point in your life that's food. So we got to think about these. There's a lot of cross reactivity in food allergens too. So I talk about that in the book, but most importantly, this diversity of diet, feeding and actively, we have to prevent allergies. Unfortunately, the way the environment is right now, we have to actively do something because tree nuts, for example, are doubling every 10 years. And a lot of adults are now getting food allergies that they otherwise were totally fine to eat when they were children. So we're understanding that diversity of diets key, feeding something to babies early and often and regularly is very important and starting with small doses in even at four to six months of age is fine. That's one thing we talk about. The other thing is dry skin. So you learned a lot about eczema. So did I when we were in training. We know that eczema is related to allergies, but now there's been even stronger evidence showing that if you have dry skin or eczema as a baby, you have a three times to four times higher likelihood of getting food allergy by the time you're three. So taking care of dry skin is really important. I talk about that. And that's really important. Yeah. For moms listening. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those are some of the causes. Vitamin D, 
having a good microbiome, having a dog in the first year of life. That also helps. Right. <laughs> that, that really throws people off because I'm sure also, again, I see in my private practice, I have my practice of immunotherapies on treating dog and cat allergies. Actually, I've treated, I've treated a couple of veterinarians also. <laughs> it was unbelievable. But yeah, so that, and they, and so when you tell a family, you know, like, yes, you should have a dog early on. They're like, right. what? Right. And not when they're allergic. Exactly. Right. But you so know, we do talk about all these things. Yeah. Okay. But you know, the thing I'm going to bring up a couple of, you brought up some really important things and I'm going to tell you what I saw in my own clinical practice. Obviously, I was following the literature, but I had a couple of dramatic cases to I just I have not forgotten in the last year where I had uh, parents who came in with their 20 something old children that had multiple food allergies. And one of the things that came up was because they had other children that did not have food allergies. And in two of the cases, the moms had gotten antibiotics during the pregnancy because they had to, there was an infection and had to be treated. And I've also seen, I know there's been reports, I think even from Daily Metso, I think he's published in the past that a lot of times when these kids are getting a lot of antibiotics for ear infections, throat infections, it's changing the microbiome. Do, do you think, I, I, we know you mentioned in the book, the hygiene hypothesis for those who are listening you know, about avoiding, you know, being too, being more, you know, it's too clean an environment and, you know, all those things. I think, as you say in the book, it's falling by the wayside, but I think antibiotics and obviously got into the food supply may have been a dramatic microbiome disruptor. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And we want to, you know, talk about in the book all the possible science that has led to the deterioration of a normal gut, the deterioration of just normal health and why we're getting so many allergies. We talk about detergents and how that might be changing the skin barrier, not just on the top of our skin, but also in our lungs and in our gut. But like you said, what about antibiotics? And there is an association that is, you know, tenable. And you, and there are many trends to show that if you do use a lot of antibiotics, your gut is not happy. It can, in some people, be irreversible. And we need to think about the overuse of antibiotics and how that changes our gut. Because my colleague, Justin Sonnenberg of Stanford and David Rellman have shown that if you don't have good microbiome and fiber and healthy vegetables and healthy fruit that you lose this beautiful mucosal lining inside your gut. And when you lose that, you're much more apt to get GI-like diseases like food allergies. So I think there's definitely something there. I think the hygiene hypothesis is important because there are viruses that can stimulate allergies, but then there are bacteria that can help improve it. So there's always, I think, a balance of any of these particular thoughts about what's causing allergy. But at least in the book, we do talk about the strong facts and how to behave differently. Absolutely. I like also the, what you talk about the topical. Again, I've heard it before. I think Hugh Sampson has brought this up. You know, it's interesting. People don't realize so many baby products from the shampoos to the soaps where they probably had different type of nut base oils in them. And again, you're right, the right, the predisposed child that has dry skin or eczema, those seep in through the, um, the skin and cause, I mean, we, as we know from allergy in our training, the skin is one of the top ways to sensitize to make somebody allergic. Like when you're in research labs, when they try to make mice allergic, they put patches of penicillin on there. That's exactly right. You, you and I read that wonderful article by Jonathan Spurgel and Raif Shehash showing that if you excoriate and scratch the top of a, a mouse's back and then lay peanut oil in, like Hugh Sampson had mentioned, that that will activate a peanut allergy. And that's, that's what we do. So I think there's something there. I think we have to be more and more careful how to protect the skin. Absolutely. 
Those are great points. I mean, I think for anyone listening, for, and we're going to get more in depth about the early introduction of foods in a few minutes. But again, people listening, I think hopefully you're going to learn a lot. Let's turn to something which I'm so glad you addressed. You're an exceptional physician researcher because you know a lot of doctors like to just look at the technical type of things, you know, and the biology and the you know pathology. But you talk about in your book, and it was one of the things that really struck me in the New York Times article about you, how you get so involved with the families. And I want to talk about the psychological, emotional toll on families, which is not always appreciated. I've personally known, because my sons, who are now in their 20s and one's 30, they both had friends that had severe food allergies. And we knew the parents. And I always joke around. The parents used to like when their kids had sleepovers in my house because I was an allergist. <laughs> yes, you know, I, exactly. they said, I should know how to use an EpiPen. <laughs> but, you know, you would see what these families went through. The kids had to be more resilient. The parents and the moms especially were on, on pins and needles all of the time. So I know you've seen hundreds of food allergy families what is your approach and what, how do you advise them? I mean, again, you're seeing a new family and they're, they're, they're afraid. What kind of either counseling, group support, what do you recommend to them? I'm just curious. Well, first of all, thank you for mentioning. And I can tell that you're also a compassionate doctor that cares about these other aspects. Because when we take care of anyone with allergy, anyone with asthma, we take care of the whole person and the whole family. And as allergists, we have this, I think, incredible accountability and responsibility, as well as privilege, the fact that we take care of all ages. Right. No, that was always, the, the people always ask me why I went to allergy. They're so far, I just have to bring this up for a sec, because people w- w- would ask me a lot of times, why did you go into allergy? And I would think for a second, it was a gut reaction. I said, you know, when I, I trained in internal medicine during the AIDS epidemic, and that was unbelievable. But I said, you know, when I got out of that training, I really missed taking care of kids and adults. I didn't want to be pinholed into one area and analogies, you know, who has the immunology background. I probably would have been a family practitioner if I didn't do this. So anyway, yes. Yeah, uh, so it is, we're, we're so fortunate. We get to take care of families, you know, cause this runs in families anyway, sorry. And that's what I always try to do is see how the family is reacting and it's a team approach. It's not just about me. I think the children and the families, like you said, and the patients with food allergies that have been suffering it through so much of their life. They're the real heroes. They're the, so courageous. And I'm glad that FAIR and other nonprofit organizations see that and understand that as really reaching out to be advocates for families and voices. So oftentimes I approach it to understand where are they coming from? Are they just newly diagnosed? Let's make sure we get the diagnosis right. I'm very open to discussions. There are so many different diagnostic uh, tool sets out there. Some of them are not so helpful. Some of them are helpful. So oftentimes, the first time I meet families, it's a lot of detective work as to if they really do have an allergy or not, as you know, using our tried and true skin test, blood test, and then a food challenge if we need to. But importantly, it's it's a discussion. It's teamwork. It's going both ways between myself and the parents and the child, if, if there is a child or the patient and myself, if it's an adult. But to me, it's a process of uh, making sure that we develop a good rapport and then also making sure that I can talk about some hope and promise about therapies if they're interested in talking about that. No matter what, though, when we do talk about it, every person has situational anxiety, as they should. They talk about their worries. It's a disabling disease. We talk about food labeling. We talk about a lot of things that are in the book. But that anxiety is real. We need to take food allergy seriously, and to make sure that people carry an injectable epinephrine device, but know that this is a lifelong discussion. 
that this is teamwork and a relationship that we'll build for a long time. Uh, and that's part of the reason, like you said, we go into allergies because we'll follow these patients long term to make sure we can manage them well. I have to tell you a story of Mike, because you never forget these things. My first patient in private practice, literally the first patient, you know, a, a pediatrician referred it to me. I just opened up my practice. I was sitting around all day. wasn't seeing a lot of patients. <laughs> it was my first patient. It was this little boy, cutest little boy who, who's actually from Guyana, his family. And very tiny. He was so tiny and he had severe peanut allergy. And his mom used to bring him in to me. And, you know, and he also had environmental allergies, which I took care of at the time. And she used to come to me, talk to me. She goes, promise me my son's not going to die. You know, so that was one thing we we're dealing with. The other sad thing, which has really changed thanks to you. And like, as you mentioned, fair, where I used to break my heart. And this is, you know, you're talking back to 1991 or so. He used to, when he would go to school, he had to sit, he used to have to have his lunch in the library. He used to aside from everybody else he was like he was essentially like being a loner and when i gave this boy credit because he was really he wasn't he had a great mom like a lot of these food allergy moms just luckily born born into the right family you know and she was so supportive of him and he ended up growing as i said from this tiny little boy to this six foot three because i ended up seeing him years later used to i used to pick him up with one arm he could lift me up now with one arm and he got through but as i said i remember the the difficulty for him and i know that things did change that you know again from fair and other things that they made more they worked with schools to make help kids not feel so separate you know or different and so but do you do you i guess that you probably encourage and a lot of the families do on their own too to get on these support groups to join because this way they have to talk to other moms that are going through the same thing Exactly. Other parents, other caretakers and other the teenager summit that the fair has a lot of the adolescents that are suffering from this. It's great to talk to your own group. I feel so lucky that for the book, we put out a website. We have a Facebook site and Instagram. I'm, I'm really pleased to see the blogs that are now happening. And then well, I'm, I've been, I think, very privileged and with the book, been able to go on different Facebook groups and talk to moms and, and parents and, and dads. And you see that this is an issue that's not just around my clinics. These are very common questions that you get all over the world. And you've probably seen that too, Dr. Mitchell, with the fact that there are some unanswered questions. And we're very careful in the book to explain what things we know and what things we don't know. There, there are a lot of myths out there that we need to just bust down. Because we have enough science now to say, no, that's not the way to diagnose or that's not the way to treat this. Right. It's so important you bring that up. I'm just going to interrupt for one second again, which I unfortunately interrupt a lot. But prior to a book like yours, and I think hopefully like mine, you know, I was always also very careful on my title. They, they originally wanted me to write The Allergy Cure, which I didn't want, you know, because you can go to a back in the day when people went to bookstores and see all, a whole shelf full of books saying The Allergy Cure, da, 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 all these false promises, not reliable, explaining the testing. So a book like yours, you know, really is the go-to type of book for, you know, a parent, especially if they're first hit with this and they need to know like what, what is real, what is not, where do I get my bearings to start exploring what my options are. Uh, I'd like to move into about early intervention as you were touching on before. Many of our listeners who have a child with food allergies have certainly, probably they've heard about the recent change in the approach to preventing food allergies. The LEAP study, which is, it stands for the learning early about peanut allergy, 
I think jolted allergists more than anything <laughs> to change the classic advice to avoid foods in early childhood. And then we did a complete 360 and we said, Oh, start having those foods by four months of age, you know? And again, you can understand this. There are parents who are like, what? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm petrified. I have an older son that's peanut allergic and I'm going to start feeding my, my younger one peanut. So I want to ask you, cause I, I mean, we're going to bring up some things here, but how do you find, do we proactively and practically get this out to, especially pediatricians who are taking care of these patients? A lot of times they're not even at an allergist office yet so that they become aware. I mean, how are you working at Stanford, maybe with the other doctors there, getting the word out that, you know, advise your, your moms and families to get these foods in early? Excellent question. I'm so glad you're bringing it up because it is counter to what we had learned 20 years ago. And again, like I said, the well-meaning group of people work with a very small amount of data. What was happening was, unfortunately, we see small blips of rises of uh, food allergy in the 1940s, then in the 1960s, a little bit more. Then in 2000, they put out those guidelines, well-meaning individuals. In the year 2000, the American Academy of Pediatrics said, okay, avoid all those foods. Then after the year 2000, it went up like this. And so then we realized, wait, you know, that, that might not have been a good idea. So I think, again, I hope that the pediatricians, that the allergists know that right now we have so much data, that it is true that if you diversify the diet early and often, that that does prevent, that has shown reproducibly now in Europe, in Japan, in Israel, in the United Kingdom, that all of this really helps. And so I think that we are in a new paradigm I think that we need to embrace it and help babies reduce the likelihood of food allergy because this epidemic is going too fast. We won't be able to treat everyone. So we need to prevent. You know, it's interesting you bring out about the different countries. Um, and I want to share a story for the listeners. It, it's interesting. I did training in Israel over there, which was really terrific. And the story that really was dramatic that I've read in a lot of lay articles was actually about the story about Gideon Lack, you know, the, the London allergist. And it was so interesting. He was invited uh, to speak in Israel. And, you know, he's a well-known allergist in, in London. And he typically says that when he would give lectures, he used to ask the allergists in the audience, you know, how many of you have, you know, patients, you know, among the pediatricians that have food allergies. And when he would do it in London, a lot of hands would go up. When he came to New York, a lot of hands went up. And also he went to Israel and like one or two hands went up. And he said, hmm, what's going on here? And then he decided to do a study where he actually, I think he looked at the, uh, in the Jewish population between those three countries. And he saw that there was a dramatic difference. And again, he got the aha moment when he was talking, I guess, to the Israeli mothers, the pediatricians, that they were all eating this, uh, this snack called Bamba. We're, we're eating Cheerios. They're eating this thing that's got like sesame seed and peanut in it. And he said, could that be the factor? And just so far, listeners to know. So that's where the science came from. I want to ask your opinion. I don't know if you've been recommending this or not. I was watching one of my favorite shows I used to get to watch a lot was Shark Tank. And one day <laughs> I was watching on a Friday night and there was this company called Ready, Set, Go. And they've come up with a powder, which I think is a mixture of peanut, milk, egg, the common food allergies, trying to make it easier for parents so they're not busy measuring out, you know, the amounts. What do you think about that? Do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, uh, we do write a lot about Gideon and his whole history of the book to explain, you know, how did we get here? 
Yeah, yeah so I do. I love that. It was really good. Stories yeah. Stories are so important to explain how discoveries are made and to make sure that, uh, yeah. I good. do too. I so, do too. It's just, yeah. So we learned right away at Stanford and Gideon was a good colleague that I didn't want to just think about preventing peanut. I wanted to prevent everything. I was treating multiple food allergies. So I had parents that were um, having children that those babies were not food allergic yet, but they always were asking me, what should I do now? And as a protein chemist, I knew that you should be able to prevent any food, not just peanut, but if you put it into the food item for that infant early and often, you should be able to prevent that specific food allergy. So that's exactly what we did. We mixed shrimp, milk, egg, wheat, tree nuts, peanut, soy, sesame, and we included others as well because I thought, let's just get it, pack it all in there. And initially, we did it through powders at Stanford. And then we patented it. And then once we patented it, Stanford said, let's go create a company. And, and I decided that instead of just doing three at a time or two at a time, let's make it easy. Let's do all 16 to be able to rent. And so we started wow. a company called Spoonful wow. One. Okay. Uh, that's the product. You yeah, mentioned on the book. Great. I don't remember seeing um, that. Before they, Brands is the company. Nestle now Spoonful has one. the license for global rights. Um, but oh, oh, people need to know about that. Spoonful so One. Happy okay. That it's working so well. It's very safe. Um, so, yes, there is this opportunity between around four to six months of age to start doing mixtures of foods. And I would recommend that. Uh, for anyone that doesn't have an already doctor's diagnosis, what do they do? They, they put it. They put it into. Let's say if they're having. If they have some type of bottle, you're yeah. saying. I mean, if they're having like a bottle, so, you know, drink or exactly. something. Exactly. There's. It's called that. We have puffs and uh, crackers, and then also uh, we have a packet of all sixteen food proteins, and they're very. They have high integrity. We actually treat it as if it was like. Uh, because it is going into infants, we make sure that there's no other issues with it. Artificial and ingredients. No other, exactly. Yeah, so wow. we're so excited about it. And yes, there are other companies moving forward as well. So like the one that you yeah. mentioned, no, this but, is, uh, yeah. of course, no, this is awesome to know. 16 foods done at once. No, it's, it's smart. It really is. I mean, why not? Okay. Let's move on to diagnostic testing. This is going to be something interesting now too. We're going to talk about, and as I said, this is going to, you know, we're going to get to very specific things, you know, you know, as I mentioned, how I was like always like a little bit dismayed about allergists not really changing or advancing, you know, from you know practices a hundred years ago. And we all know that allergists for really a hundred years, skin testing has been, you know, quote the gold standard or whatever. And it hasn't changed much since the days of uh I think noon and Freeman over in England <laughs> in nineteen eleven. But but we know that, you know, laboratory testing is getting more interesting. I like to use a lot in my practice, something called component testing, which I'm sure you're aware of. I think it really gives you the specific things and obviously without the risk of testing kids. So my question is this. So it's going to uh, be, you know, I know you're an academic and everything, but my question is regarding the gold standard of food allergy testing, the oral food challenge. Is it still the only option to confirm a diagnosis of food allergy? And I want to ask this just with the two caveats, especially in the light of COVID-19. There was just actually an article in the Journal of Allergy this in practice this month about that. And it also brings up a little bit of, of, of Mary Lovelace, you know, because just so I have to share with the audience, because I did see one patient believe it or not, in my career that saw Dr. Lovelace. And this woman was terrified of going to a doctor because as a child, they brought her there. And just for the listeners to know, back what they did then, as I said, I give Dr. Lovelace a lot of credit. She was the expert on the venom, which gave a lot of credibility to the field of allergy, but she had a sting room. 
They used to bring the kids in. The kids used to get stung by the bee to see that if they had, if the immunotherapy you know, the shots had worked. So I sometimes feel, I hate to say this, that the oral food challenge is a little bit of the sting room uh-huh. brought in. Yes, so, that's right. You know, can, can we rely on some blood testing? You know, there was also an article in one of the recent journals about and things that I want to start looking at, because I'm starting to do, I'll talk to you about, you know, some food allergy treatment, that, like the basophil activation test or a specific IgG4. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, because as you know, also too, doing food challenges is really for really specialized practices. It's not for the routine, you know, practices that we see. I agree with you, uh, Dr. Mitchell. The food challenges are draconian and, uh, and we create so much anxiety in doing them. On one hand, I understand that the FDA needs that defined, very specialized, and that probably won't change for a while, but we can create the change, and we should. We have to push the science to do better because I feel for that patient and that mother and that father who just come into the office kind of trembling, even when the skin test is negative. Oh, they're dreading it. Yeah, like I'm in New York and Matt Sinai does a lot of them. So I have a patient that I'm taking care of and they go, oh, I got to go. They want me to come in for another challenge, you know, and it's hard. So I feel for my patients and that's what inspires us to get better in our science. I really believe in community based participation, that our patients should be the ones that say, wait a minute, why do we need to do a food challenge? So there was a great paper by my colleagues in Boston, Linda Schneider and Andrew McGinnity. And then Scott Shisher at Mount Sinai also published a paper with Bob Wood showing that if you have a clinical history and you have a certain threshold of a component, let's say ARH2 for Like the peanut, like ARH1 or ARH2. And you have a certain skin test positivity. There's a nomogram that you can just pretty much show that, okay, you're going to get a positive food challenge. So if you just line up the ruler and it's over 95%, just don't do the food challenge. So, so. Linda Schneider and Andrew McGinnity published a beautiful paper um, in which hopefully all of your listeners, I'm happy to share it with people. It shows that about 50% of food challenges are probably unnecessary. You could have probably just wow, figured it out. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. The blood test and the skin prick test and clinical history, importantly. And that's why you got to go to a board certified allergist. You can't just sort of look at a sheet because if you look at the sheet for blood tests, as you know, the computer will just say hi, 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 hi. And that's not necessarily right. true. You need to put you, it into you the You need somebody who's experienced exactly. interpreting it. So yeah. but Great with point. that, I agree with you. There is going to be an age, and oh, it, hopefully you'll write the book, The End of Food Challenges, <laughs> because <laughs> we need that. And, um, yeah. and, okay. and we need to do something better. We need to get rid of this draconian practice. But right now... It's our practice to be able to have an endpoint for an FDA-approved drug. And I really also talk about in the book that we need more FDA-approved drugs. We need more choices for patients for multiple food allergies as well. So this is the beginning of the end of food allergy. We have Pelforzia, fantastic. Now let's move forward. Yeah, we're going to get into those in a second. Yeah, I don't want to give away too much of our interest. So those are great points. Okay, let's, let's move on to treatment too, because I'm sure this is what everybody really tunes in on for, you know, <laughs> like when we get into the, 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 you know, the end of the food allergies. So, okay. So for decades, once a, you know, family realized that their child was food allergic. The only option for a long time parents and the children were told was avoidance and sensible. Yes, except practical, not really, especially when the number of food allergies increased in so many of these children, uh, it really became almost impossible. So I want to ask you, obviously being at the forefront of so many research uh, protocols over the years, 
and you talk about this in the book, which is really good. I mean, and, uh, you know, again, so helpful to the families going through this. There's, you know, we really have about, I would say two options right now, but maybe three on, well, you know, some variations. There's the oral immunotherapy, which you talk about. And I know you have tremendous experience with. There's the sublingual immunotherapy, which again, I know you've done work on. I'm doing that now. I've worked with Edward Kim a little bit on that. We'll, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. And there's, of course, what's called the epicutaneous immunotherapy, the patches. So if you could explain for our listeners a little bit about each one and a little bit, I guess, your pros and cons, because I'll, you know, that, that's my way we might debate a little bit. I want to hear, you know, you know, I enjoy hearing him from you. And I've talked to Edward Kim and Anna, you know, we all have our, you know, but you can have tremendous experience. You, you've been through all the trials with patients and we'll even actually toss in a little bit about maybe even the monoclonal antibodies, their role in this, or, you know, and you can mention about how for you. So, so please tell us a little bit again, what from the book and what you, um, yeah, and I, I know that you have the same goals. We, we want the best choices for our patients. And one size doesn't fit all. That by having choices, we also need to make sure we understand as doctors which patients will be enabled by this therapy the best. And we have some patients that don't want to touch the food. They don't want to eat the food. That's where the patch and sublingual might be way better. And so the, I think that by having FDA-approved drugs epicutaneous sublingual immunotherapy, as well as oral immunotherapy, and then the biologics, which we can talk about. These are the choices we need, yeah. right? Well, like, it's a whole new world. Thinking about cancer therapy, we're, we're kind of, you know, we have our first drug ever approved by the FDA. That's incredible. That was last yeah. year. That's why I wrote the book, yeah. to make sure people know that, okay, the train is moving. Let's get on it. But so to answer your questions, oral immunotherapy, it's got to be carefully done. It's got to be done in a clinic with a board-certified allergist who knows what they're doing. You dose very slowly and carefully, and you increase the dose ever so slightly every two weeks. And that builds up the immune muscle so that you can get rid of the allergy eventually. But it takes a long time. And you're basically changing your thresholds for you don't have to worry about national ingestion. And for a lot of people, that's fine. But while you're doing this, while you're training your immune system and building your immune muscle, you can have reactions along the way. And during immunotherapy, that's more common than, let's say, the epicutaneous, this patch, or the sublingual immunotherapy, which is a much smaller amount. And there are reasons why for each of these, because the gut is automatically tolerant, it's very helpful to eat it. And because you have these special immune cells in the gut that like take up the food and then become tolerant. But people don't necessarily like to eat the same thing that they were allergic to. I know it's a big and psychological I'm issue. Yeah. Right. I'm excited about Palforzia and I really believe in the data, the fact that they could get 87% in their active arm and only 4% in the placebo arm. We know that it works. The issue is how can we make sure it's safer and even works better? And that I do use the four letter word cure. Like how do we get to a cure? How do we stop it and make sure that people are going to do well? So these assays that you mentioned, the skin prick test, the, the, the component testing, the basophil assay, all of those, not only can they be used for diagnostics, but they can also be used. Well, that's for what I'm really excited about. Yes. Well, that's, that's what I'm searching because, you know, I'm doing, well, you know, the sublingual immunotherapy now, and I know it's a lower dose, but the data is really good. And, yes. you know, at the end, yes. people are, you know, of course the patients always ask me, how do I know I'm better? And I'm like, well, you'll see in the real world if you, if you do okay, but it would be so nice to have like a basophil activation test, or I like to look at even with my immunotherapy patients who are environmental allergies, you know, I treat them for yes. animal allergies. That's right. I checked 
their specific IgG4s. And when I see their certain exactly. high levels, I have a, I have a better confidence because I see yes. quickly, they, they'll tell me that before I couldn't walk into a room with a cat. And now I can be, you know, with it for a few hours. Yeah. And that's key. And that's what's exciting. And we talk about that in the book. Let's have choices for patients. Uh, this is not for everyone, but when you need to talk to people, you need to talk to your team. And the sublingual immunotherapy, there's a lot of good data out there. And even though head to head, you know, it didn't do as well as OIT, no matter what, each patient is different. Those clinical trials does, do not mean that it didn't work. It means that it can be working in different circumstances. Well, we also know too, our, I think our goal as, as allergists and, you know, the doctors in the community is to really make to ease that burden, that, that fear, you know I mean? If I, if I can treat a patient that they know they could go to a restaurant with a friend and not worry that there's a, a peanut or a walnut or something in their salad. And then they're off to the emergency room and they get that protection. That to me is a victory. Absolutely. Totally agree. So each person deserves that. Yeah. Chance. Can I ask you a question too? Cause I was asking Ed Kim about the, Ed Kim about this also. So age wise, you know, I mean, I think there's a couple of factors with immunotherapy too, which you bring up. You have like, it was really great. It was at the end of the chapter. It was like a checklist because, you know, I also give such careful consideration to a child's age. I yes. consideration to their parental situation. That's I mean, sometimes right. it's very difficult. If it's a divorced family. If the, exactly. you know, this has to go back and forth, are they going to be watched parents both working? So just to, I, I wonder also what you do. I mean, do you, do you also sometimes wait till they're about four or five years old? I mean, cause some of these kids do have strong allergies, but to maybe see if they grow out of it, or again, we want the, the, the child to be a little more compliant be active, you know, in, Absolutely. you know, I find obviously, yeah. So you take those into consideration when you, I completely, I mean, you, you understand we need to make sure that this is compatible. And if someone's going to have reactions, even though they're mild for the most part, we want to make sure that the parents are connected and that people aren't going to uh, have mistakes in the dosing and that there's not a lot of room for error and that people carry an injectable epinephrine device at all times during this therapy. Right. There's a lot of hope right. and promise here, but it's got to be done just like most therapy, right? There's always some guardrails around it. Yeah. Um, I, so that's yeah I find myself having to really judge the parents. You know, it doesn't matter their socioeconomic background. I, I mean, there are a lot, it seems like there's a lot of, I mean, as I said, some of these children are so lucky to be born to the right mom or dad. And I've seen sometimes people who, you know, come from poor backgrounds that it's really hard, but the mothers are fantastic. And if I think they're going to be good about absolutely. it, I'm like, okay, let's do uh, this. You absolutely. know, but if, but if it's another one where they say, Oh, I can't remember the dosing and you know, oh, this is too hard. Yes. I'm like, this is not it's, for you. That's right. You know? It's gotta be done with the right people and the motivation and the preparedness. Right. So, and you gotta get a good sense of that. Or if something changes while people are taking immunotherapy, like what we do in clinical trials, we understand, you know, things are tough, especially in COVID. We get that. Yeah. And, and we do need to have more telehealth visits and more accessibility. And I'm so glad that right. the FDA and the NIH They've been holding, you know, our elbows during this whole crisis to be able to continue to do food allergy clinical trials, to continue to help Great. food allergy therapy, but do it carefully in the time of COVID. Where do you think, and I, we, I just briefly mentioned about it, you know, I don't like to use them a lot personally, the, the monoclonal antibodies, you know, for asthma. I don't usually find that they, you know, I can do without them, but... It was interesting because I think Zolaire, I forgot the generic name for it, it was you know, originally for food allergies. And apparently, it didn't really cut the mustard, but it, it seems like the, it's, it's sort of like, how do I give the example? It's like, you know, it's like in the military, you know, you have your air power overseeing so the ground forces can go in. Do you think that 
I, I mean, there are cases where if you were in practice that you were like, you mentioned actually, I think it was with, uh, with Sloan Barnett's child that they did Zolaire on top of while the desensitization was going on. Do you, what's your thoughts on how often that should be done? Cause again, also it's hard getting the drug companies. I mean, the, the insurance companies paying for all this. They're like, you know, right. And they're like, well, we're paying this for this and this for this, you know, pick one. Right. So for private allergists too, like how I talk about that in the book, like what, what are the things that are some options right now? And I understand there's a lot of discussion in our conferences about using oral immunotherapy now that Palforia is there. There is a phase three trial right now. Thank goodness that uh, actually it was Dale Ometsu working with Genentech to get a breakthrough therapy designation with the FDA, with the NIH and Novartis. And we have a special group at the NIH that's doing port allergy research. Edwin Kim is a part of it. So is Anya. It's called the COFAR. And so with that, we, were, we showed that the multiple food allergy therapy with solar could be done safer with solar. And that's been proven and published. It, you're right. Zoller doesn't work perfectly for everybody, but for the majority of people, it really did protect. Now, I understand it's a biologic. We want to make sure it's covered by insurance. Like you said, we want to make sure everything is accessible for people. And that's why FDA approval is so important. And um, we want to help multiple food allergies too. So there is a phase three uh, for all of your listeners to know a phase three trial means that that's the step right before an FDA approval. So I want to let everyone know it, the time is now, the time is coming. We are working really hard. You can go on the website. And if you do have multiple food allergies, there's a clinical trial right now, accepting patients to come in to use Zoller plus multiple food. But as, as how it works, Dr. Mitchell, in terms of getting solar for people. I always tell people if they want to try it, they can, but that there is a possibility without solar. And there are other biologics coming up. There's anti-IL-4 receptor alpha blockade, which is dupilumab. That's going to be very exciting. There's anti-IL-33, which we tested last year. That's exciting. There's vaccines. And then we actually just created a company called Igenix that inhibits each different, what we call peptide or component as well. And then there's another company, Aladep, that's making all the food allergens at once to desensitize too. So there's a lot of excitement around this. Oh, wow. You know, I think the other good thing too, even with the monoclonal antibodies, like Zola, like hopefully also it's not a lifelong thing. Like, you know, sometimes when people with asthma have to be on it for many, many years, this would be obviously a transient period, you know, till, till they would hopefully desensitize and then you could pull that out. Uh, we're going to go on to something else. We're getting near the end, but there's something else which also... A lot of allergists, we don't talk about this. You wear a lot of different hats. <laughs> I saw all your uh, directorships, which is amazing. But look, to be honest, I don't think a lot of people are aware that allergy training programs in the country have, are being eliminated and the positions decreased. I know my program, the oldest program, I think, in the country at the Cook Institute was disbanded uh, over 15 years ago. Pretty sad. Where do you think the future allergy doctors are going to come from? And how can current allergists become proficient in some of these newer techniques? What's what's your you know, your feeling and what you're dealing, I'm sure, in the Stanford area when you're dealing with people in private practice? Because not everybody, fortunately, has the option of coming out to Stanford or sometimes coming to New York to Mount Sinai, you know, to get in and to get in these trials. They want to see their their local their local allergist or whatever. I think FDA approval is going to help make sure this gets out there for all of our fellow allergists and they work so hard and they spend long hours. And of course, with COVID, it made it even harder. And we work in 
diseases that produce a lot of mucus, and that mucus gets definitely more difficult when you have viruses, eczema, and asthma too. So we're really on the front lines a lot of times, and we are the go-to people. I understand that, and that's a privileged position. And in that, I am hoping that by having more therapies available, that allergists can get trained more on how to use these therapists when there's a training program. But I agree with you. I, I am also very saddened when training programs are shut down and we need to make sure that more people are going into our specialty because one in three individuals in the planet has an allergy. And when we have science to back us up, which we do, and we have better therapies now moving forward and many more companies are now working in the allergy space, when we have the opportunity to fix these diseases like drug allergy, insect allergy, you write so well in your book about sublimunotherapy and dog and cat and environmental allergies, these, what I call the ruby slippers, are in our hands, right? We have some answers here. We need to be able to get more trainees out there to clinics so that we can help people. For example, in the Bay Area, it takes nine months to see an allergist. Nine months. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> people usually could get into me within two weeks. <laughs> we, we need more oh, people and we need more allergists. I hope that we inspire some people to train in our wonderful field. You know what I think, too? I mean, again, that's why I think you're special. And there's other people out there, too. We just also and I try to give lectures before this whole COVID thing. It's also about education. You know, it's like you can't be just cooped up in your office. I mean, you have to get out there. Uh, you know, I used to always love doing grand rounds or, you know, speaking to, to doctors. It's fun. I mean, you really get to be with your colleagues and really exchange information. And honestly, you know, a lot of my listeners know the reason I do this podcast, obviously it's a lot of selfish, personal uh, fun. I get to talk to top people in so many different areas of medicine I've always been interested in and, and learn what they have to say. Because, you know, when we stop, I always tell my students when I teach at the medical school in New York, when you stop learning, you're finished. <laughs> Hang it up. <laughs> <laughs> and that curiosity, that's why it's so great that you have this podcast. I'm so grateful. And that's exactly right. That curiosity is key. And we got to inspire people and educate. And that's part of the book. I hope people like it. It's also on Audible. So that's great. Oh, wow. Hopefully that's great. So you can listen to it while you're driving. So again, it's The End of Food Allergies by Dr. Carrie Nadal, really allergist extraordinaire out at Stanford. I just, as I said, I love this book. I actually have a couple of copies that are going up in my office and oh, I'll probably encourage my, uh, my patients, you know, to, uh, to get it, who want to find out more. Thank you, Dr. Nadal for coming on and Thank taking the you. time to be here. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you for your time today. I hope, I hope we get to meet at a, I hope we get to meet at a meeting someday when, uh, this is Absolutely. all behind it's, us. I, I think the end is, is coming at some point, but, uh, I'm so glad. And thank you so for too. having me on your show today. Really appreciate it. Have a great my day. My pleasure. All right. I'll let you know how it Thank goes. you. Right, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.